Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Megan Lee. More than any other, horror is a genre that is constantly reinventing itself. From the earliest vampire villain on screen in Nosferatu, to the languid anti-heroes portrayed by the likes of Brad Pitt and our beloved Gary Oldman. From the iconic shambling Romero zombies, to the fast-paced rage victims chasing Killian Murphy along deserted London streets. It's not just the characters of our monsters that have changed, but our heroes have also evolved over time too. From the screaming blonde victim, to the kick-ass blonde vampire slayer, to two inept London flatmates just trying to reach the pub. But no matter what, a horror movie always contains screams, and blood, and victims. There are tropes within horror that we know and love, and The Cabin in the Woods is a film that asks, just why are these tropes so enduring? So tonight, we're going to be discussing a piece of cult cinema history. The film is almost a decade old now, but it is still as bitingly satirical of the horror genre as ever, even though it took screenwriters Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard only three days to write. So my first question to you is this. Do you think Cabin in the Woods is really a horror movie? Interestingly enough, Netflix lists it as a comedy, while Amazon puts the DVD in its horror category, but Amazon Prime lists it with the categories of comedy, fantasy, horror, science fiction, and suspense. What do you guys think? Amazon is stupid. <laughs> I laughed at that. <laughs> well, it's stupid. It has these ridiculous categories. That's far too many. It's clearly not fantasy. Um, but I think it is an interesting question because, yeah, I mean, there's plenty of elements of comedy in it, but I found it quite scary in places. Maybe that's because I'm a slight worse and I don't actually watch that much horror. Um, but I mean, I'd argue, yeah, it's it's a pretty. I think it occupies a fairly unique place between kind of horror and comedy. But then it makes me also wonder: does horror innately have comedy kind of buried in it because of its almost? I don't want to use the word slapstick, but you know, sometimes it's all all is all quite over the top. You know, the the sledgehammers and the chainsaws and the ice picks. Um, it's there as a, a thrill factor. So I wonder if there is an element of kind of hilarity just buried under the surface and, and actually horror and comedy are closer than we would naturally think. Hmm. I mean, I would challenge you to watch some more horror films and see if you still think that. <laughs> um, but certainly in this, and I mean, I always had kind of issues with people who used to describe Buffy as horror because well I I didn't ever think it was really scary but it does contain the tropes of horror and at the same time you know Joss Whedon was known for sort of really undercutting the the tension with humor which again they do really well in Cabin in the Woods but I'd also like to pick up on your thing of it's definitely not fantasy why isn't it fantasy it's got mermen and like a unicorn and it's got all these sorts of fantastical creatures so why doesn't it fit fantasy no 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 you're saying (laughs) you 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 i'm gonna defeat you with your own argument you are saying that it's like it uses the tropes of like horror um well i'm saying that it's used some tropes of fantasy but that using a trope um borrowing it does not make it fantasy it's borrowed that it's borrowed the idea of a merman actually when we see the merman it's a fucking horrifying thing like it's a fucking monster i mean that is not a there's not a fantasy merman fantasy merman are hot you know they've got like nice tails and okay yeah even the one in shape of water i mean like yeah obviously each to his own but you know like this was definitely a merman corrupted by the horror genre here <laughs> corrupted by the horror genre yeah Oh, I love it. Horrific beast. <laughs> there was no hotness there. there. You're right. There was no hotness there. <laughs> I don't really know how to follow that. 
I thought you were going to come in and say something like, oh, Daddy Buckner was really hot. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Were there any hot monsters? Oh, well, now I quite liked Fornicus, the Lord of Bondage and Pain, but definitely to look at and, and nothing more. You know, he was he was quite fit in a very confident, self-assured way, but that's kind of as far as it went. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'll back you up there. But, I mean, I was reading that... One of the strategies that Drew and Joss went for on the opening was they wanted to have that really horror-style opening and that sudden cut to where you get to the office sector with um, Citizen and Hadley. And they said the whole point of that opening was to kind of wrong-foot the audience and almost make them feel like they'd come to see the wrong film and go, you know, what the fuck, what's this? And as I watched it through, rather than just, you know, enjoying it and, I don't know, doing sewing or something at the time, as I usually do when I do watch horror movies, and actually paying attention, there was an awful lot of juxtapositions where you went from a straightforward horror movie to something comical and then something comical to something quite sinister. So you have um, the whole bit about the the Harbinger's speakerphone incident. You've got all of that stuff, and then they're just cracking themselves up. Um, and it goes from sinister to comedy and the, the standard horror introduction and then it jumps to something quite poignant and you've then got the gratuitous underwear shot and, you know, all these kind of things. But also you've got the idea of when it pans up from the horror music and they're sort of driving off in their RV and they're all kind of happy and you're like, oh, yeah, this is kind of like a, a cool bit of the horror movie. We know what happens here. And then you pan up and there's a guy on the roof. And if you listen to the music, it changes very, very definitely. Um, and then that bit with the bird flying into the invisible force field, you've got that beautiful panoramic shot and then the eagle just flying along and then suddenly snap, it's not there anymore, which obviously um, is a prelude to what happens later on, which we were discussing just before we started recording. So I kind of feel that I know what Lucy is saying, that there are some horror movies that are just funny and there's there's a very fine balance. Sometimes horror movies can be so bad, they're hilarious unintentionally. And then sometimes they've got horror movies like Black Sheep or Shaun of the Dead where it is riffing on horror comedy, riffing on horror to get to comedy. But I think Cabin in the Woods does something different from those and it just balances the two in a way that you don't see in many other films. And I think it's so brilliantly paired up the sinister and the comedy that it really does kind of unbalance you as you watch it. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I think what's really interesting is when you have films like Scream, the Scream like franchise, and then you have like scary movie that are taking the piss out of, you know, the, the, the tropes that we see in movies like Scream. Um, you know, clearly stuff like Scary Movie is setting out to like rip the horror genre. Like it's really stupid and it's really funny and we're just, you know, and that and that's what it's its entire goal. And so I agree with you in that a Cabin in the Woods is not doing that. I don't think it's setting out to take the piss out of horror. Um, I think it's it's really interesting. I think it's setting out to maybe present us a film that is going to well, kind of you said it yourself, like it, it, it opened, the first scene opens and maybe people think they've come to see the wrong film. Um, it, it's constantly kind of pulling the rug out from under us. And I think maybe that's what they set out to do, um, you know, when they came up with the kind of conception of it. I also think it's definitely a commentary on horror narratives as well. So maybe not taking the piss out of it, but I feel like it's a little bit, okay, hear me out, but it's a little bit like um, the Belgariad because I always read the Belgariad like it's kind of a bit tongue-in-cheek. It kind of knows what it is and just kind of runs with it. I feel like there's a lot of that self-awareness and that tongue-in-cheek aspect of The Cabin in the Woods while still being a horror film just like the Bulgariad is is tongue in cheek and sort of leaning into but self aware of those tropes, and at the same time being one of those fantasy books. No, a valid comparison. I was going to make a slightly different comparison and say it is satirical, a bit like Terry Pratchett, where you've got a overall concept which is whatever you know Terry Pratchett might have um, racism or culture and history or Macbeth, and then you kind of build a character world around that and it's 
bitingly satirical and yet at the same time it's still a fantasy novel and I kind of feel the same is true of Cabin in the Woods it is bitingly satirical of both society and horror and what makes people enjoy horror and I mean the very fact that the elder gods sorry the old ones underneath that are sleeping they have to kind of view it like a tv show almost oh we have to have the boobs we have to have this they have to die in the right order this isn't just ritual this is entertainment for the the gods and i think that's a wonderful idea about why do people sit and watch horror are we just as bad as the gods kind of going well you know we're just going to sit there and enjoy people suffering because that is one of the the trouble I, I have with horror. And when my daughter says to me, well, why do you watch these kind of things? I don't like being scared. And I'm like, well, it's a very weird thing that we are drawn to horror. And, you know, really what does make it? And this whole idea of the the old ones enjoying it, it just, oh, it's so meta on so many levels. Look, we all like to look at something pretty, okay? It's just part of, you know, what entertainment is about. Don't take that away from the old ones. But are blood and guts and suffering really pretty? Uh, I was talking about the boobs. But oh, sure. I see. Sorry. <laughs> I personally thought you were talking about Chris Hemsworth, but you know. Oh, no, no, no. Doesn't do it for me, bloody Aussies. <laughs> hey, well, you know, I'm not judging. Maybe they like boobs and blood and gore at the same time. They are the old ones. You know, who, who knows the mind of a god? This is very true. So one of the themes that I think goes throughout this and is both on an obvious level and on quite a subtle level is the idea about choices and fate and transgressions. So let's start with the idea of choices. Uh, The organisers, for want of a better word, make a very big thing about how many choices the teenage group have to enable them to turn back and avoid their fate. Oh, they have the harbinger that they could listen to. They don't have to choose, you know, any objects don't have to choose to go down into the basement and so on. But if you then balance that with the idea of the hair dye and the fact that the harbinger is so ridiculous, I mean, who would genuinely listen to a man who is that insulting and clearly that way with the fairies? Do you kind of feel that it's directing them in a certain direction? I mean, how much choice do these guys really have? Okay, when it comes to the harbinger and like, I don't know, all of those, some of those like warning aspects. I felt like that was just a total nod to the, you know, most of those horror films where you sit there watching it going like, don't go down there. No, what are you doing? Don't run off by yourself. No, don't do that. You know, and, and obviously, you know, the the splitting up thing, they reference that directly. Um, but those warning things are there more, I think, because... They're always there in horror films, and yet people are fucking stupid, and they go down the dark alleyway by themselves, or they, you know, they run into danger despite all the signs. And we like to think that if we were in that situation, we would know better. But I think you're right. You know, if I actually think about it, if I went on a holiday and some nutter was telling me, "Ooh, don't go there. No one ever comes back from there," or you know, some nonsense like that, I'd be like. <laughs> Yeah, all right, mate. Maybe sniff less of the glue and you know, I I don't think I would listen to those warnings, but it is funny when we watch horror films and we think, "Oh my god, why are all these people in horror films so stupid?" Well, that's the thing. It's because the harbinger is just so over the top and you kind of feel if it was a nice old grandma sitting there, you know, with her knitting in a rocking chair and go, "Oh, dearies, really." You know, they, they've had quite a lot of deaths there. You know, I really think you, should, you would pay more attention, wouldn't you? And even if you kind of went there anyway, you'd be, you kind of be on your guard and you go, yeah, let's not go down into the scary basement. But it's almost like they're giving them the choice, but wrapping it up in something so ridiculous that no one would ever make the choice to listen to him. Mm. And then you were talking about the, you know, let's split up or let's stay together. And their first instinct, what Chris Hemsworth said is, right, we're all going to band together in one room and defend it, we'll get out of it. And then they dump him full of pheromones or hormones or mind-altering drugs, and he goes, no, we should split up. And you kind of go, but that's not fair because they'd already made the choice to be together and they probably would have survived, but you you pumped them so full of drugs and you controlled them so much, you directed them differently. So is there really any choice? Yeah, I would argue there's no choice at all in that film i think everything is controlled minutely i mean you mentioned in your notes before the hair dye 
I mean, that's before they even get anywhere near the murder cabin. Like, how long have they been watching these kids for if they've got that level of control? So the whole thing is a setup, like right from the very beginning. Okay, but I would argue that they do have choice because of Marty. Marty has, you know, obviously they they talk about how like his own personal blend of marijuana makes him immune to their mind-altering drugs or whatever. But the fact that he is able to, A, see what is going on before them. He makes them, basically. He finds the microphone. He is the one telling them not to go down into the cellar. He's the one saying, you know, don't do that. Don't do this. They're messing with us. They're controlling us. Something's fucked up and whatever. And the fact that then he then finds, you know, the the elevator into the actual compound. There's all that kind of stuff. I I feel like he represents choice. Now you see, I agreed with you right up to the point when they actually get down into the basement. And this is where I think it starts to take a more subtle level. Um if you watch them when they go into the basement, all of the guys are like disappearing off and going having a look at music boxes and and um, those puzzle balls and things like that. And like Megan says, Martin's in the back going, guys, why are we doing this? Come on, let's leave it alone. And then he kind of sighs and turns away and he gets drawn in as much as the others. There's almost like a, a level of hypnotism. And like you say, you've already established that Marty is the one that is the sensible one because when they're all up in the the top bit and the um and the door blows open they say oh it's the cellar door it just blows open in the wind and marty although it's off camera goes what kind of sense does that make so they've already established that he's the sensible one but when he gets down there even he is drawn into the hypnotism as well and this leads me on to kind of my next question is there maybe something even deeper at work here because I wondered how much choice you think the organisers have because they also have warnings that they ignore. So do you think this is a wider commentary on the nature of choice and self-determination and that maybe the old ones are kind of setting them up to fail? You've got all these issues like when they when they pour the blood into the, the diagram of the fool that it all starts to rumble and they go, whoa, steady there, guys. And they're like, actually, no, the old ones know that Marty isn't dead and they're giving you a warning and the tunnel doesn't blow up. And then when they're all having that big after party, someone goes, no, no, we we had instructions from higher above. The tunnel wasn't supposed to blow. And they're like, well, who gave that instruction? And I just kind of wonder if there's something even deeper here that is going on that is directing not just the teenagers, but also those in the control rooms. Okay. Um this is where I would say that I think there's kind of two films in this film because it's also a horror film for, you know, as we call them, the organisers, I don't know, because it's basically like what could be your absolute worst day at work? This is it's kind of like office space but to the extreme. You know, they go to work, they have one job, and their job is to make sure that the old ones are, you know, they get what they want, they're satiated, but everything goes wrong and they just can't seem to catch a break. You know, like it is literally the worst nightmarish day of work you could possibly imagine. And maybe that is about choice, but also do they really have a choice? The organisers certainly don't, I think, because they have a job to do and not only is it they would lose their job if they didn't do a good one, but the whole world would just be destroyed. So it's like, you know, it's like my kind of bad day at work is not the same as a heart surgeon's bad day at work. You know, there's there's differences. Well, don't you think that is a choice, though? The, the whole choice is being made if, you know, it's it's weighing one life against millions of life's lives and saying, well, whose life is worth more? You know, it is an individual's existence. It's like, I think Watchmen was doing something similar. You know, it was like one person dying to save everybody is that. This is very complex ethics. Like, who gets to decide? So I feel like even though the organisers maybe feel like they don't have a choice, they did have a choice. At one point in the past, somebody decided to set this whole thing up um, and 
and feed these sacrificial victims to the old ones to stop them from devouring the world. Um, but they could have let them devour the world in the first place. That's a choice. I mean, that's that's going a little bit far. That's like saying that I have a choice because my great 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 grandfather had a choice. No, not at all. No, I mean, no, I mean, like, because basically, this this essential choice is reflected in the very final choice that they make, where they basically go, "Well, actually, wouldn't it be great to see the gods?" And you know, humanity's time is over, and it's pretty fatalistic, but it's still a choice. So I feel like, why did they continue to do their grandparents' work or their ancestors' work? They didn't have to continue to do that. They have chosen to continue to do that. Uh, I guess. But also that choice at the end to see the Elder Gods is not the choice made by the organisers. No, That's the choice made by Marty. Yeah. I'm kind of with Lucy on this one because whilst I was watching it, I kind of looked at it and went, well, what sort of system has nine-year-olds dying horribly? Because if you concentrate on the subplot that they've got going on in Japan – They've got this, it's obviously based on The Ring or any one of those Japanese horrors, but they've got like a room full of schoolgirls who are nine years old. And how come they're running that? And that would be what would save us, that a load of nine-year-olds would die horribly. And I know that obviously, uh, speaking as a mother, that's obviously my key point of horror. But I also kind of look at it and go, how... How do they decide that that was right? And I mean, there's there's a whole load of questions you could ask about this. And it was one of the questions I wanted to explore as to who are the good guys in this? Is it the teenagers who are being controlled or is it actually the organisers who are the ones doing the controlling but at the same time are having this idea of it's the many versus the few? But then at the end of the day, you also say caring for the few results in the death of all. Or does it? You don't know. You you just it's almost an impossible circle going round and round and round. And you might say, yeah, it's it's the death of a few is important. But like Marty says, if the death of the few is his friends, or if it's the the nine year old children stuck in a, a Japanese school getting murdered horribly by this ghost, what kind of a, a decision has led to to those results? What's the value of one person's right to live? set against the value of a whole species' right to live. And and just to bring in, actually, something also Japanese, Dororo, which is one of my favourite animes from, um, it's the re- 2019 remake from last year. Um, this, this, was, um, this whole question was at the heart of that as well. You know, one, does this one boy, this one boy's suffering guarantees you know, um, ripe harvests for the entire kingdom. People are raised out of poverty because the demons get this boy's soul and his body parts. And it's like, well, but nobody ever asked him whether he was okay with that choice. It was simply forced upon him. And as he, you know, journeys and, and reclaims parts of himself from the demons, he has to ask himself this. He has to, you know, he could give up. He could give up that fight and say, okay, no, I understand why that choice was, you you know, my father made that choice, that deal with demons. And this is a similar thing. You know, it it is a deal with the devil to say, so there are some people who suffer, but the suffering is set against uh, the potential suffering of many, many more people. And I think it's, you know, I think what they've nailed really well is this absolute ethical dilemma. Like nobody who, which of us has the right to decide how a life is measured? I'm going to take this to a political place. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Star Trek there for a minute. <laughs> I thought she was going to go philosophy. <laughs> well, also, I mean, yeah, we could talk about Machiavelli and, um, you know, the ends justify the means. We could talk about uh, the good of the many outweighs the good of the few. Mm. Um you can talk about all that, but what I actually wanted to talk about, maybe it's just, it's on my mind uh, at the moment, but things like climate change and social welfare. So in our current situation, I feel like the world is actually taking the Marty approach and not the organizers approach. Because if we look at it, the the rich people basically don't give a shit. They're not going to help out all those people in poverty 
they're not going to do anything about uh, climate change because they think, well, you know, it probably won't affect us because we've got enough money to get out of it and be, you know, it'll cost us more and impact our bottom line so somebody else can deal with it. They don't care. And I would say that actually when you think about it, the ethical choice is to, you know, fuck Trump and <laughs> reshare the wealth or or help the many. Um, and I personally found it interesting because the film, I feel, sets up the audience to agree with Marty. But I maybe maybe I'm just weird. I don't know. Maybe people will say that I'm a terrible person, but I'm with Bradley Whitford all the way. Like I think that they are the good guys because they are looking after the many. And I know obviously there are questions of you know, can they actually believe all this? Do how do they know that they would the world would be destroyed and everyone would die? You know, so you have to take that on faith. But if we accept that aspect of it, I think that the organizers are the good guys overall. I'm just throwing that out there. So sticking along this ethical line and the idea of who is the good guys, I think we also need to think about who are making the rules and whether or not they're the good guys, because the organizers claim that the teenage group must choose to transgress. But who decides what is a transgression? You've got these five characters, and they all have to die in a particular way, and they all have to have very certain traits, and they have to choose to transgress and to choose this, that, and the other. But who is really deciding what is good and what is evil. And it goes back a little bit to what Lucy was saying of these are all things from their great, great, great grandfather's time. This deal made years and years ago. Hasn't society changed? Aren't our transgressions different, like Megan was saying, with climate change and things like that? So where do you think this film comes down on the idea of what is a real transgression? Is it going out and having premarital sex? Or is it trying to manipulate the death of nine-year-olds, the death of a group of innocent teenagers? And I mean, particularly when you get to the end and the director comes along and says, and we have the virgin. And Dana says, oh, no, no, I'm not a virgin. And she goes, we work with what we have. And you kind of go, that, but that's not the point. You know, you're even breaking your own rules when you're judging people. So where do you think all this is coming from? Well, I was actually just about to quote that bit and say that, look, they're clearly aware of their own limitations here, their, their own kind of um, the, the definition of a transgression has clearly changed because that's they wouldn't say that otherwise. Um, but it does seem um, especially biblical or especially ritualistic and, and old fashioned in the sense of labelling people like, you know, the, the virgin and the whore. What makes Jules a whore, just that she dyed her hair blonde, that's just that she likes sex, you know, why is that, um, why does that condemn her to be the first to die? Um, so, you know, there is that element to it that I think is very, like, retrospective and backward looking. See, I think the whole thing is a little bit of a commentary on religion, especially things like the virgin and the whore um, and some of those and and what is seen as a transgression. It does, as Lucy mentioned, it, it comes sort of from those biblical ideas. And, you know, we see it in kind of modern Christianity, especially that's, you know, my reference point, um, where things like if you, you know, look in the Bible and it says things like if you see a gay person and they are actually having sex or whatever it is that they're doing uh like you know you give them a warning but if they do it again then you can stone them to death like we don't actually follow that but at the same time there's still that idea that they are transgressing for for a lot of people within the church but then there are other things that we kind of forgive it's like you don't have premarital sex but how many people do you know even christians who abide by that and we will forgive that and it, it seems a bit like there are these rules 
that we seem to to claim are like the ultimate rules, but at the same time we we know that society has changed, but we haven't allowed the rules to change because supposedly they are written in stone and so on. And so for me, I felt it was very much a comment on religion and how religion works in modern times. And this is why the organisers are not the good guys, because they would have changed. They would have understood that no one can naturally, like clearly the old ones are just like the, almost like the, 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 the old God, the Yahweh kind of God, the God that doesn't um, forgive or forget. Um, and so the organizers are aware of this. And so they kind of feel like maybe they have to abide by these really, really outdated rules. But do any of them ever try to change the system or to change the rules or to find sacrificial victims who maybe are more worth, I mean, this is a terrible thing to say, but like what made those school kids, you know, if, they, if they're going to kill people, why pick innocent, air quotes, victims who clearly have not done very much wrong in their young lives other than to sleep around. Hang on. Innocent victims that have slept around. Are we still talking about the nine-year-olds? Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> this is even worse. It's just making my point. But yeah, you know, like, this is ridiculous. You know, they're clearly aware of the fact times have changed, but no, they continue following the same old rules laid down by their grandparents. Well, this is where I really like coming back to Megan's idea that there are two different films. Because if we go with this idea that to die, you have to transgress, I think there's an awful lot of transgression in what the organisers do. But it's also balanced up by this idea of an of an office job. And you get two sides to um, Bradley Whitford's character and, um, sorry, I'll have to look at their names here, to Hadley and Cit- Citizen. Because on the one hand, they're really kind of so somber. They're really accepting of what they've got to do. They're very serious. And then it all kind of cuts to all the parties they have. So for example, if we're talking about transgressions and what is a terrible thing to do, I would say that while someone is dying on screen, having a party is is not a good thing to do. And I, I understand it in the concept of the film. And what they're kind of say is that this is just a day job for them and they've succeeded. And even though someone is dying in the background, it's it's okay to party because they've saved the world. But I kind of feel that in itself is a transgression and that they are not respecting the sacrifice that has been made. You get Bradley Whitford when the boobs appear and he just says in this utterly deadpan way, score. And it's kind of that balance of there's something really terrible going on, but score, we've got what we wanted. This is something serious. Okay, we acknowledge it's happened and and whatever. And then you get this idea when they're talking, I think it is Truman, the guard, who says, um, doesn't the girl have to die? And Bradley Whitford goes, the main thing is that she suffered. And then Whitteson says that she did. And then Bradley Whitford goes, well, I'm actually rooting for this girl and starts going on at this really long impassioned speech about how he really just wants her to live. And then he goes, tequila is my lady and starts to party. And for me, that is a huge transgression because they've done this terrible thing and all they're doing is partying. And I then think this kind of echoes what's going on. They're transgressing. And then at the end, obviously they all had the most terrible death. So I really like this idea of Megan's suggestion. There are two films and they both have warnings and they both transgress and they both meet a very sticky end. So we thought about the film as a whole, um, whether it's comedy or horror, we thought about the themes within it. And I kind of wanted to think about the gender roles and the stereotypes within the film, because I think there's some really interesting aspects here. Uh, You've got, obviously, the whole point of the teenage group is that you've got the two girls and they're kind of you know, stereotyped as the, excuse my language, the whore and the virgin, which is how they described. And then you've got the three boys and that's seen in so many horror films. And they are treated as stereotypes by the organisers. But I kind of wondered if you thought they were atypical in the behaviour that they portray and whether they fall into the normal gender roles that you would expect to see from a horror movie like this. Completely. I mean, I I think the the point is that they are almost opposites of what they're meant to be like the alpha male the what do they call him he's like you know the the athlete or whatever you know he's 
a good student and he's supposedly very clever, although we don't necessarily see that in the film itself, but that's what they tell us. Um, you know, Jules, the whore, the blonde, you know, who's meant to be the stupid, ditzy one, and she certainly acts that out, you know, as we know, because they put stuff in the hair dye. But she's pre-med. Like, she's, you know, clearly very clever. And you have, obviously, I think my favourite kind of inversion is the fool, who is Marty, who we've already discussed, is, is kind of the only one who talks any sense for a lot of the film. So I think it definitely plays with those ideas, and, and that is very much the point. I mean, perhaps the uh, the scholar is the one that is the least inverted because, you know, he does actually, you know, he reads Latin and, you know, he puts on his glasses and he is like the equivalent of the hot librarian, but for girls, because, oh yeah, put those glasses on, mate. Um, <laughs> but he, you know, he he does kind of have that that scholar vibe going on. And Dana does have the, the virgin vibe as such, uh, because she is sort of meek in a lot of places. She's definitely plays into the good girl tropes um so yeah I, I don't know actually yeah that's quite interesting that there's there's two characters that don't necessarily invert as much as the other three i don't know thoughts no no i think um no i think that they all invert quite nicely actually and the the only thing that jumped out at me that is that was more kind of um that followed stereotypical lines was the way that the two guys treated their female um colleague um you know the one who they who was giving them a hard time about stuff and they basically just wrote her off i thought that was that's probably the the most stereotypical thing that they didn't do anything about unless you disagree no you're right i hadn't even thought about that half of the film i was just thinking about the teenagers so oh, well sorry i know I, I i but i kind of agree with you i know i think the teenagers are very uh openly um the, the stereotypes are openly inverted and um, you know i think it's you know, even going so far as to actually say well yeah she's not a virgin we work with what we've got kind of thing <laughs> so um but yeah i just wonder if there are other elements outside the the kind of five um teenagers that aren't quite so overtly subverted yeah i think it's actually quite nice though because when you do meet the director obviously it's the wonderful sigourney weaver but the director of this whole thing is a woman which i always like seeing a, a nice a woman in power go her but also i think i think you're right in terms of um amy acker's character in that she kind of gives them a hard time but also she is the one flagging or or showing them giving them the warnings and they don't listen to the woman which i think is an interesting thing so where say if it is going for the biblical things you might say well you know eve would be tempting the men into transgressing whereas she is there basically getting them to not transgress to show them what's happening or to to highlight what what could go wrong um which is quite interesting and definitely you know there's some sexism misogyny in how they speak to her um but at the same time she becomes a figure of warning a figure of practicality of sensible kind of approaches that kind of thing um, which is quite i would say quite different to how women are often cast especially in horror films because it's usually the women who would like walk into the dark alley, which as we know is kind of the whole thing with Joss Whedon and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. What happens if that blonde girl in the dark alley is actually the one that the vampire should be afraid of? Um, and I would say similarly where, well, but see then that's where when with the teenage group, they don't invert the stereotype in that, you know, it is completely the final girl trope. And with the final girl trope, they usually are quite, um, persistent, you know, she struggles and and moves the plot along and she is relatively sensible, um, all of those things, and she still does manage to sort of be there at the end. So I would say that the final, tr final girl trope isn't really inverted. 
Um, I was just thinking about um, the kind of racial aspects of this and the fact that, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there is only one black character. Truman, the guard. That is true, um, yeah. Well, hang on. Isn't, um, oh, I've forgotten his name. He's a mixed race. Jesse Williams. Yeah. Yeah, who plays the intelligent one, Holden. Ah, true. Okay. I just thought it was interesting that they gave him that particular role. Um, I mean, it's not unusual that there's a lack of um, black characters in major film, but it's interesting that he had that kind of witness role. Well, I thought as a veteran horror movie, it was quite nice to see people of colour in roles where they were playing warnings and were being the sensible ones and they weren't just basically lined up to die which is kind of almost the person of color is almost the same as the blonde woman having sex they're almost at the top of the list to to tick off but what I kind of felt with this film was that like Megan said you've got um so the organizers as one film and the teens as another film and the teens start off as you say inverted but I also feel that they then transform into the stereotypes. They're forced into that role. You have this whole point where Marty, always on the ball, says, what is with this alpha male shit with um, Chris Hemsworth's character, Kurt? Because we see at the beginning when he's recommending to Dana which book she should read. Oh, I don't want to read that one. This one's much better. And when his girlfriend is insulted, he doesn't do the whole alpha male thing and stride up to the harbinger and knock him down. He's quite reasonable and backs off. But he then gets transformed into this through the control. And I know what you're saying about the final girl trope, but I also then feel that the whole conversation they have with their director that we keep coming back to about, I'm not a virgin, oh, we work with what we've got. She's almost undermined it there. She's almost said, well, I'm not a final girl. And they've gone, oh, no, it's fine. But she actually ends up being the one who survives. And I almost feel like the... the organization like Lucy was saying um and me was saying about the female character who was saying you should do this and and then Bradley Whitford and Richard Jenkins are just brushing her off and going no 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 we, that's fine and they do adhere to the stereotypes and they're the ones who end up being killed horribly whereas the teenagers okay they're manipulated into being into their stereotypes and as soon as they fall into that they then end up being killed but if they'd actually stuck to it, then they probably would have survived, as we've seen with the whole idea of Marty being the one who wasn't affected and the girl who isn't actually the virgin. She says, yeah, I'm not the virgin. So almost she's undermining the stereotype they've put her in. And I think that's that's quite a really interesting point. The only thing that I think they could have done better, and this is one of my favourite stories from IMDb, was apparently Fran Krantz, who plays Marty, he is the only one not to jump in the lake when they had that whole thing where they're all splashing around in the lake in all their speedos and bikinis and things. And apparently it was because, according to Drew and Joss, their words, he is ripped like a muscular Jesus. And he was actually in better condition than Chris Hemsworth and Jesse Williams. And they felt that if you saw Marty without his baggied clothes on, which are deliberately baggy to hide his muscles, then it would undermine his character because you can't have the nerdy one being the ripped one and the most, you know, muscular and, and good looking. And I kind of feel they almost missed a trick there because that would have been a really nice inversion if actually the nerdy one was the one with the best pecs. But, you know, this film is so brilliant anyway, you can't have everything. Well, also, I don't, I think it might have just complicated the issue when they've already got the alpha male thing going on. I think clearly what we're seeing is a commentary on the dangers of stereotyping and the you know the the fact that you you basically just said it charlotte like the when they subscribe to their types they're more likely to be killed um and they're more likely to fall into the kind of the the well-worn tracks of the ritual whereas you know we we clearly see that they're all actually without being influenced by various drugs and various hair dyes um they're not at all stereotypical teenagers they they're all quite independent thinkers um and maybe that's what it's it, there is that element to the film as well it's to say that you know it's stereotypes themselves and it's our willingness to consume them and to be attracted by them um it, and because stereotypes deceive you know and they're they're dangerous and they actually um, kind of mask people's true natures. 
Well, one really interesting fact, which I didn't really cotton on to until I'd read some of the background to it, was the director. They also had in mind Jamie Lee Curtis. And I thought Jamie Lee Curtis and Sigourney Weaver, two women well-known within the horror genre for themselves being the final girl. I mean, you can't get more final girl than Alien or Halloween. And I just love this idea that the final girl is the one at the top who is controlling everything. And theoretically, she's probably the last one of the organisation to die as well. But she goes before the final girl of Dana. Again, just thinking about it, it kind of almost just turns your mind into knots because it so works on so many different levels and has so much commentary on the horror genre. See, I feel like that could easily play back into the ethics of the whole situation because the final girl realises that uh, she's got to make some sacrifices to save the rest of the world. Just saying. That is a valid point. Yeah, like maybe she escaped before, but, you know, what goes around comes around. You know, it's time to pay up. Oh, my God, that would be an amazing prequel where you've got Sigourney Weaver's character outliving the old ones and then coming to the top. That's a really good one. I like that. So having talked about so many elements of so many levels of this film, I kind of feel like I want to wrap up by going back to our original idea that this is both a horror and a comedy film. And when my husband watched it and he hates horror, he came to the end of it and went, do you know what? That's not horror, it's a comedy. And then when Lucy watched it, when Megan and I made her, sorry, Lucy, she texted and said that was really scary. And I think it's really interesting that you've got a film that can have some genuinely scary bits in it and some fabulous comedy as well. So just to wrap up, I wanted to have a little fun moment where each of us volunteer up our favourite comedy moments and also anything we thought was genuinely scary. So who'd like to go first? He's got a husband bulge. I knew you were going to have that one. <laughs> I had to find another comedy moment because that's just, oh, it's just priceless. I just love it. And I love that they bring it back, you know, when they kind of have it in the kind of creepiness aspect of finding it in the diary. And then Marty commenting on uh, Holden having a husband bulge when he's kissing Dana. I just think it's fucking brilliant. I'm sorry, but I like it cracks me up every time. But uh, I also... I, I kind of wish I liked tequila because I say it all the time, but the whole tequila is my lady. Like, I, I just love that line. Uh, not really all that funny, but I don't know why. It just, it really gets me. I really like it. And uh, yeah. Okay. Scary bit. Um, see, I don't find it that scary. <sighs> the only thing that's coming to mind is not actually scary. It's just like cringy is when, uh, when Jules is dead to make out with the wolf head and she is full on kissing it and like mixing her tongue up with it like you know you can see the tongue of the wolf moving around and everything like okay that's yeah yeah (laughs) i just really really don't like that bit I agree. I think I'm going to go for, I mean, I could go for the merman because, you know, like that is, that is a, as Charlotte has uh, told me, is a very popular, uh, funny moment. But I really like the, the, am I on speakerphone? (laughs) Because the fact that you just don't, you know, he's so serious. You were introduced to the Harbinger, like as a total nut job who, you know, was actually really unpleasant. But then clearly it's quite, it's, there's a, a slight humorousness then like to his character it kind of lightens the whole thing up and I just whole I love the speakerphone moment because like it's a trick we've all played on like our own family members obviously the merman great is great you know like he's so um is it Hadley he's obsessed with the the merman coming out and then finally he gets to see the merman just not in a way he wanted to <laughs> um so yeah that's my funny moment um and I don't watch, I'm not a massive wuss, it's just I don't watch that many horror films. Um, so probably the stuff I find scary is, weirdly, a couple of things, weirdly the bit where they were like, don't say the Latin, because words have power, and I thought that was actually quite moving when they were kind of alone in the dark cellar and, you know, they were going to say something that was basically uh, to, you know, like to, start a ritual it was very obvious that was what was going to happen um but as we were saying before we started recording the other bit that i've kind of freaked me out was when um you know they set up um kurt to escape 
And I really thought he was going to go. I really thought he would escape on that motorbike. I'd forgotten the scene where the um, eagle smashing into the energy shield um, had kind of that. Would, that was a long time, an hour and twenty minutes in the past, and I'd forgotten it. And I really thought because maybe I'd seen so many Hollywood films that yes, there's always one person that goes out, and you know maybe he meets a sticky end further down the lane, but. You know, that's that's as it was. But it was so shocking when he just hit that shield and like cascaded ignominiously into the dark. Fuck. I thought that was really powerful. See, I'm not sure I found that scary, but I, I certainly found it very powerful. And it was one of those like, oh, they didn't <laughs> moments. I think for me, the most terrifying bit is when um, Marty and Dana are in that elevator and they're going down and they're seeing all the different creatures in all the other boxes. And for me, it's the contrast between the utter darkness on the other side and the neon brightness of the elevator and the fact there is nowhere to hide in the elevator. And the one that really gets me, the, the sort of interaction that I find particularly terrifying is Fornicus, Lord of Bondage and Pain, as he is apparently named in the credits, and the way he just slowly walks towards her and it dawns on her exactly what has happened. It's that moment of revelation. And he's quite a bit taller than her, so he naturally looks down on her. And his body is very relaxed. He's holding something that's ostensibly very pretty. He is just supremely confident and she rages at him and he doesn't flinch. And she just bangs on the glass and these blood smears and he's just completely implacable. And he's not bothered that he can't get her. And if he did get her, he would destroy her just with the same kind of arrogant grace. It's just so terrifying. Yeah. And, and what's terrifying is her banging on the glass. I'm like, stop banging on the glass, stupid girl. <laughs> I'm like, how thin is that glass? And there's a little part of me yeah. goes, there's still monsters in there. It's got to be pretty thick. But at the same time, you're right. You're screaming, don't bang on the glass. What if it breaks? He'll reach through and get you. So I found that particularly terrifying. Um, as for comedy moments, I knew, I knew that Megan would take the husband bulge moment, which is, oh, it cracks me up every time I laugh out loud. So there was plenty of others for me to pick. And I, I have to say that I find Bradley Whitford very funny, particularly having seen him in The West Wing and now seeing him in this, you just can't help think of him, but Josh in this movie. And there's one bit where Ronald the intern is trying to figure out who he's going to bet on. And he goes, this long people, oh, I should do this. And, this. and he looks at Bradley Whitford, sorry, looks at Hadley and goes, what do you think? And Hadley goes, uh, more than anything, I just want this moment to end. <laughs> I just thought it was just so brilliantly delivered. And I think if it had been delivered by anyone else or at any other time, it just wouldn't have worked, but it was just perfect there. But I'm just going to be a bit cheeky and have an extra one because I think my favourite comedy moment related to the film was when I was reading up on it and there was a screening, a sort of pre-cinema screening, and they had fan question and answers at the end and Drew Goddard came on and someone put their hand up and said is there going to be a sequel? To which Drew apparently replied, have you seen the ending to my movie? Which I think is just the perfect, like, yeah, absolutely. There is very little way you could come back for this and have a sequel. And I think that kind of nicely wraps it all up. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsome. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.